that dough. Smash that like, baby. You in here. Alright, baby, we're in here. What's cracking, you beautiful, beautiful, beautiful thing? You beautiful thing, you make some noise. Smash that like. Hey, I've got to remind you to smash that like. Apparently, people forget to smash the like. I can't believe it. Every day, it's very important that I remind you. Smash that like if you're locked in live. Smash that like if you're locked in live. And if you're on the replay, hi. Hi, replay. Hey, nice to see you. Nice to hear you. Nice to feel you across space and time. Yo, what up, Mount Photo Lounge says, rewatched last night's show. Amazing mix last night. Tonight be better. Yo, a lot of people loved last night, huh? Last night was dope. If you don't know what happened last night, uh, we did a live scoring, kind of live remixing, live waving job on Viveki. Introduction to Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. And it went so well, we're going to do another one next week. Hey. Neo Stoicism's in the house. We are the quiz that's had rack. Rack or rash? I think rack. I like that. Hey. Shout out to everyone locked in. It's Dune Wave Audio Book Club night. We're going in with Dune Wave Audio Book Club Disc 10. Disc 10, baby. We're getting deep. We're getting deep. The story's getting mad exciting if this is your first time. Uh, we'll be doing a little recap. Cindy Bailey says, Vrvake, Vrveke, stream was lit. Lit, Littington. Robert Easley was cracking. Shouts out to everybody locked in. How you're feeling? How you doing? How's this week going for you? It's the eve of Thanksgiving here in America. Tomorrow we give thanks. And, uh, you know, it's the MAZ and we do this. We give thanks every day. It's one of, one of our major things. It's one of our major customs here at the Meaning Wave Autonomous Zone. Uh, this this beautiful nation we're building here, you know, one of the things we do is be grateful every single day. And today I would like to extend my gratitude to you. My gratitude to you, to you. You who come here, hang out, tune in live, smash that like. You who listen on the replay, you listen on the podcast feed, you who listening across space and time. Uh, we just had our best day ever on Spotify. Spotify continues to grow. It's up 11% this month on the previous month. We've got that exponential expansion thing going on. You know that um, that Perito, what's his face? 
Mr. Parizo is applying his, his distributionary spank to our Spotify presence, and that's a beautiful thing. We just crossed 1.5 million streams in the past 28 days. Some of those were you. Some of those were you. And I would like to say thank you. Thank you, you, for being you, for being here, for engaging, uh, you know, and, uh, and, you know, making it so that uh, we get to do this, you know, we get to do this. This is what we get to do. It's not the other thing. It's this thing. This is the thing we get to do by Joe. By very Joe, his very self. Make some noise for yourself. For yourselves. <laughs> oh, there you go. Yeah, let's listen to a song before we get into this thing. I like this song. While we wait for our brothers and sisters to receive their notifications, which they only receive if more people smash like. It's a one-in, one-out policy with dear Susan. Dearest Susan. That's not. I don't care what happens. What I don't care is... It's dismissive. It's a loving indifference, a benevolent indifference, as Francis used to say. It's not an indifference that is cold. Because awareness is not an aloof, separate witness of experience locked up in an ivory tower of indifference. It is intimately one with all experience, so it's Intimacy is its loving aspect. It doesn't know the meaning of the word resistance or rejection. So it is intimately one with, and at the same time, free of all experience. So it is both loving and indifferent. So it is both loving Loving indifference, being indifference, being indifference, being indifference, being indifference. We're speaking about awareness. Loving indifference is a meaning to the words true and false, right and wrong. Loving indifference. We're speaking about awareness. Loving indifference. The qualities that are inherent. In our true nature, we're speaking about awareness. If we talk about mind, that's a different matter. Because mind experience is always divided into polarities. Good and bad, right and wrong, true and false. And at the level of mind, those categories are valid. They don't pertain to consciousness. Consciousness doesn't know the difference 
between good and bad. There is no good and bad or right or wrong. But when consciousness assumes the form of mind, it divides itself into two. And at that level, there are differences, there are distinctions, and there is a meaning to the words. Nothing is different. We're speaking about awareness. is a meaning to the words true and false, right and wrong. Nothing indifferent. We're speaking about awareness. Nothing indifferent. The qualities that are inherent in our true nature, so in terms of ethics, what is right and what is wrong. I would suggest what is right at the level of the mind is behavior that expresses the qualities that are inherent in our true nature. Another name for awareness is love. So behavior that is loving is an expression of the inherent quality of our true nature. The inherent quality of our true nature. Nothing indifferent. We're speaking about awareness. Nothing indifferent. There is a meaning to the words true and false, right and wrong. Nothing indifferent. We're speaking about awareness. Nothing indifferent. The qualities that are inherent. In our true nature, cruel or unkind, unjust, unloving behavior are behaviors that, whilst they come originally from awareness, there's nowhere else they could come from. They are filtered through the belief in separation, and as they are filtered through separation, they are perverted or distorted. So, hatred, for instance, is love distorted by the sense of separation. So hatred, for instance, is love or distorted by the sense of separation. Make some noise, that was Rupert Spira and Akira the Dawn, of course, from Meaning Wave Masterpieces 2, the recently released Ultra Ultra Mega Superburger Turbo album collection of righteousness and glory. And uh, that's a very powerful record and one of my favorites. That's one of my favorites. I love that record. I'm very happy with how that came out. It came out exactly as I dreamed the sound of it to be, you know? And that's always a good thing when you can do that. It's a good thing. Hey, West Int Row. God bless you. Thank you for the support. 
says, thankful for you, Akira. Appreciate your work. As always, hey, thank you. We got new work dropping tomorrow. New work dropping tomorrow. Now, as you might know, tomorrow, Lo-Fi Christmas, a Lo-Fi Christmas miracle is dropping. And it will be hitting all streaming platforms and all of that. And it's a beautiful instrumental Lo-Fi record. However, as always, I've I've done a version of it with, with vocal samples on it. Uh, that will be on exclusively on YouTube. And uh, anyway, I was doing that today and I, it ended up like having some meaning wave on it. It wasn't supposed to. I didn't plan to, but it's come out that way. So tomorrow, tomorrow night, after the stream, we'll be premiering, 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 premiering uh, a Lo-Fi Christmas miracle. And yeah, you can look forward to that. It's, it's actually got some meaning wave on it. So there you go. Uh, very exciting. Very exciting stuff. It just happens, you know. Sometimes it just happens, you know. Sometimes meaning wave just occurs. It just occurs. You know, and uh, and I can't stop it occurring, even if I were to try. You know, sometimes it just picks me up and and guides my hands, all that type of thing. You know, if you having been, uh, you know, operating in the zone for almost three years now, sometimes you know the force just comes along and sock puppets you. You know, like that, right? Wop wop wop, and next thing you know, you're doing some meaning wave, and you don't even plan to. Whoop 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 whoop. I, right. I find God, as you wish. It's a Lo-Fi Christmas miracle. Hey. Hey, hey, hey. Anyway, shouts out to everyone locked in. We're about to go in with our regularly scheduled Wave of Dune. Our regularly scheduled Dune Meaning Wave Live Book Club Expedition, number 10, disc number 10. Uh, before we do that, of course, we need to do the international high five just to see whether or not we're international and to make sure we can root our energies uh, properly in order to make the stream good, in order to make the the delivery correct, you know? So, today, like we always do on a Wednesday, for the International High Five, I want to know where on this sweet earth you are and give me a recap of what happened previously on D-W-D-U-N-E. Give me your own personal recap of what happened so far. A very, a very short, couple words, whatever, just how you remember it, you know? Perfect. Dune. Desert planet, fat, evil bastard. <laughs> that's mine. That's my, my. That's mine for today. Desert planet, fat, evil bastard. Epic mother and son team. Perfect. Yeah. Mikhail says Lo-Fi Christmas album is tomorrow. Yes, tomorrow. Tomorrow it is. It is tomorrow. Tomorrow it is. It is tomorrow. And uh, I could say that. I can't think of another way of saying that. I actually can't. It's tomorrow. Hurrah! Isn't that wonderful? Are you excited? Are you full of joy? Are you washed with glory and wonder? Uh, do you want to hear the instrumental of a cover version I did of Christopher's Lady in Red about 20 years ago? You have no choice in the matter. Hey, hey. Dude. Goodness, this is epic. I haven't heard this in a long time. Never seen you looking as lovely as you do tonight. Ooh. Ha! Yeah. yeah. All right, let's see what everyone's saying. Never seen you looking as lovely as you do tonight. Oh. Never 
Cause you shine so bright Ooh, 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 ooh I'm trying to read the chat No! Never seen so many men ask you if you wanted to dance Looking for a little romance Giving half the chance And I've never seen that dress you're wearing Or the highlight in your head that cut your eyes I have been blind, lady in red She's dancing with me There's nobody here It's just you and me M-A-Z And I hardly know This beauty by my side Man, how can you not sing when you hear this beautiful music? How can you not sing the beautiful words of Christopher? I've never seen that dress you're wearing or the highlights in your hair that catch your eyes. Christopher didn't even notice that his gyaldem had gotten highlights. Never noticed. He was too busy writing epic songs. So she put on a red dress. And you know what they say about a red dress? You know, you heard the record. You heard that Jordan B. Peterson and Kira Dillon song about what that means. What that lights off and what, what that sparks off. Yeah, yeah, you already know. Now, 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 where were we? We're getting a recap. Recap, because we're doing Dune. We're not here to do Christopher cover versions. Sway says, these Dune thumbnails, though. Hey, hey, quite. Michael Dodgel says, hype, hype, hype. D-Man says, tree, tree, tree. Sway says, bought my boo a Christmas lo-fi jammies for our anniversary. That's the most romantic thing I've ever heard. Sway, you are the world's foremost epic romantic and I salute you buying Christmas lo-fi jammies for an anniversary present. If that isn't true romance, I don't know what is and I really am playing an appropriate record because I hardly know this beauty on my side. And uh, yeah, so shout out to you by Joe. Good, amazing work there. Very proud of you. Uh, I can see this relationship lasting. You know, Robert Evely is easily lo-fi Christmas miracle. Yeah. DJ Rambro says, remember being a kid and finding a big ass box, like a double wide refrigerator box? You would be the hero of the neighborhood, right? And did you ever do that thing where you get the big ass box and then you like sit in it and you push yourself down a hill? That's the best. You ever do the thing where you like, you attach the, the, the box to uh, a tray and you go down the hill or you grease up the underside of the box and you go down the hill super fast. Ooh, 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 ooh. Now, where are we? Let's see. Uh, Recaps from the crew. D-Man says uh, the Duke is in deep doo-doo. That's one way of putting it. You could also say dead. Unless you mean the new Duke. Uh, Patrick Smith, good to see you, Michael Keith. Hello, Michael Keith. YouTube hero Alex, man's about to say which. D-Doo-Lice, he say it, lol. Oi. Uh, Sway to Colonel Washington. I'm admittedly, admittedly a bit lost, but I love it. <laughs> lost? How could you be lost? It's all so clear. It's all so obvious what is occurring. Can you not tell the obviousness of what is occurring? 
by Jove. Clean up your mind. Ooh, sway. What a, did you hear that transition? Amazing. Uh, Mikhail Archangels posting pictures of, of ducks. Okay. West intro entered the desert. Yes, that's true. That did happen. The the Sai uh, Saifos, Denmark in the house. Any other Scandinavians? Yo, you're a blade, baby. I'm proud of you. Uh, mostly Scandinavians seem to come to the morning show on Twitch. Good to see you here. Um, where are we at? Adam Stone says, meaningful relationship. Indeed. Boone716, Paul and Jessica are surfing an epic sandstorm. Shouts out to Darude. It's a very good point, they are. They were going crazy at the end of that last one. And they had to do the litany. You know, and uh, and uh, your boy Paul became like super turbo space pilot guy. Epic pilot of dunes. Epic pium pium pium. You know, he really was going in. He was going in. And uh, we, sh we shall continue in this fashion. Yes, Boom 716, Paul and Jessica are indeed surfing in epic sandstorm. Michael Dodgeoil says, My mum once turned a couple of refrigerator boxes into a pirate ship for my birthday when I was the perfect age for that kind of thing, and I think it was the coolest thing she ever did. And uh, that's got nothing to do with the Dune recap, but it's a beautiful story. And uh, my wife did that for our son the year that we were apart, because uh, I was in America setting up our new life. And uh, he loved it, and the pictures were beautiful. <laughs> John Grady says the jihad is taking form. Paul's terrible purpose manifests. Yep, 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 yep. The Sissai Fuss, 10 out of 10, will stay up late again. Proud of you. Michael Dodgeville, Maryland, Desert Storm, Dissolving Bone. Yes, that's true. Good. Very, very good, brothers and sisters. I think you deserve an international high five. I think you do. One by Joe. YouTube Hero Alex says, is this the first time we've heard Darude Sandstorm on a stream? The answer is no. Of course not. This is a great song. I've played this at least twice. Play this song at least twice. I kind of want to play it all now. I was just playing a little bit of it as just a, a segue, but... Imagining the bit from the end of last week's Dune with this music. The music at the end of last week's Dune was epic, by the way. Shouts out to the DJ. Whoa! Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Here. 
Fear is the mind killer. I must not fear. Fear is the mind killer. Fear is the little death that yeah. total obliteration. <laughs> I will face my fear. I will permit it to pass over me and through me. And when it has gone past, I will turn the inner eye to see its path. New member West intro. It's gone, there will be Welcome to level one, baby. Use those emojis wisely. Only I will remain. I must not fear. Must not fear. Fear is the mind killer. Whoa. Fear is the little death that brings total obliteration. I will face my fear. I will permit it to pass over me and through me. And what do you despise? I will turn the inner eye to see its path. Whoa. Where the fear has gone, there, there will, will be, be nothing. nothing. Only I will, will remain. remain. What do you despise? What do you despise? What do you despise? Pain. Pain. What's in the box? What do you despise? Whoa. What's in the box? Pain. Pain. What do you despise? What do you despise? What do you despise? Pain. What? Pain. What? What do you despise? What do you despise? What do you despise? Pain. Let it never be said. That you do not get your money's worth here on the Meaning Stream by Joe Darud Sandstorm, Comic Book Girl 19, doing the litany. She. And now, brothers and sisters, I think we're ready. I think it's time. Smash that like if you've not yet smashed that like. Post that link in a Discord, in a group chat, in a wherever it is. Tweet it, Insta, story it, whatever you gotta do, baby. But it's time. It's time for us to head back on down. What do you despise? 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 By this are you truly known? From Manuel of Muad'Dib by the Princess Irulan. They are dead, Baron, said Yakin Nefud, the guard captain. Both the woman and the boy are certainly dead. The Baron Vladimir Hakonin sat up in the sleep suspensers of his private quarters. Beyond these quarters, and enclosing him like a multi-shelled egg, stretched the space frigate he had grounded on Arrakis. Here in his quarters, though, the ship's harsh metal was disguised with draperies, with fabric paddings and rare art objects. It is a certainty, the guard captain said. They are dead. The Baron shifted his gross body in the suspensers, 
focused his attention on an ebeline statue of a leaping boy in a niche across the room. Sleep faded from him. He straightened the padded suspenser beneath the fat folds of his neck, stared across the single glow globe of his bedchamber to the doorway where Captain Nefud stood blocked by the pentashield. They're certainly dead, Baron, the man repeated. The Baron noted the trace of Simuta dullness in Nefud's eyes. It was obvious the man had been deep within the drug's rapture when he received this report and had stopped only to take the antidote before rushing here. I have a full report, Nefud said. Let him sweat a little, the Baron thought. One must always keep the tools of statecraft sharp and ready. Power and fear, sharp and ready. Have you seen their bodies? The Baron rumbled. Nefud hesitated. Well? My lord, they were seen to dive into a sandstorm. Winds over 800 kilometers. Nothing survived such a storm, my lord. Nothing. One of our own craft was destroyed in the pursuit. The Baron stared at Nefud, noting the nervous twitch in the scissors line of the man's jaw muscles, the way the chin moved as Nefud swallowed. You have seen the bodies? The Baron asked. My lord, for what purpose do you come here rattling your armor? The Baron roared. To tell me a thing is certain when it is not? Do you think I'll praise you for such stupidity, give you another promotion? Nefud's face went bone pale. Look at the chicken, the Baron thought. I am surrounded by such useless clods. If I scattered sand before this creature and told him it was grain, he'd peck at it. The man Idaho led us to them, then? The Baron asked. Yes, my lord. Look how he blurts out his answer. The Baron thought. He said, They were attempting to flee to the Fremen, eh? Yes, my lord. Is there more to this report? The Imperial Planetologist Kynes is involved, my lord. Idaho joined this Kynes under mysterious circumstances. I might even say suspicious circumstances. So? They, ah, uh, fled together to a place in the desert where it's apparent the boy and his mother were hiding. In the excitement of the chase, several of our groups were caught in a lace gun shield explosion. How many did we lose? I'm, uh, not sure yet, my lord. He's lying, the Baron thought. It must have been pretty bad. The Imperial Lucky, this kinds, the Baron said. He was playing a double game, eh? I'd stake my reputation on it, my lord. His reputation? Have the man killed, the Baron said. My lord, Kynes is the Imperial Planetologist. His Majesty's own serf make it look like an accident then. My lord, there were Sardaukar with our forces in the subjugation of this Fremen nest. They have Kynes in custody now. Get him away from them. Say I wish to question him. If they demur, they will not if you handle it correctly. Nefud swallowed. Yes, my lord. The man must die, the Baron rumbled. He tried to help my enemies. Nefud shifted from one foot to the other. Well... 
My lord, the Sardaukar have two persons in custody who might be of interest to you. They've caught the Duke's master of assassins. Howard. Fufur Howard. I've seen the captive myself, my lord. Tis Howard. I'd not have believed it possible. They say he was knocked out by a stunner, my lord. In the desert where he couldn't use his shield, he's virtually unharmed. If we can get our hands on him, he'll provide great sport. This is a mentat you speak of, the Baron growled. One doesn't waste a mentat. Has he spoken? What does he say of his defeat? Could he know the extent of... But no. He has spoken only enough, my lord, to reveal his belief that the Lady Jessica was his betrayer. Ah. The Baron sank back, thinking. Then... You're sure? It's the Lady Jessica who attracts his anger. He said it in my presence, my lord. Let him think she's alive, then. But, my lord, be quiet. I wish Howard treated kindly. He must be told nothing of the late Dr. Yui, his true betrayer. Let it be said that Dr. Yui died defending his duke. In a way, this may even be true. We will instead feed his suspicions against the Lady Jessica. My lord, I don't... The way to control and direct Ementat Nefud is through his information. False information. False results. Yes, my lord, but is Howard hungry, thirsty? My lord, Howard's still in the hands of the Sardaukar. Yes, indeed, yes, but the Sardaukar will be as anxious to get information from Howard as I am. I've noticed a thing about our allies, Nefud. They're not very devious, politically. I do believe this is a deliberate thing. The Emperor wants it that way. Yes, I do believe it. You will remind the Sardaukar commander of my renown at obtaining information from reluctant subjects. Nefud looked unhappy. Yes, my lord. You will tell the Sardaukar commander that I wish to question both Howard and this Kynes at the same time, playing one off against the other. He can understand that much, I think. Yes, my lord. And once we have them in our hands... The Baron nodded. My lord, the Sardaukar will want an observer with you during any questioning. I'm sure we can produce an emergency to draw off any unwanted observers, Nefud. I understand, my lord. That's when Kynes can have his accident. Both Kynes and Hawat will have accidents then, Nefud, but only Kynes will have a real accident. It's Hawat I want, yes. Ah, yes. Nefud blinked, swallowed. He appeared about to ask a question, but remained silent. Howard would be given both food and drink, the Baron said. Treated with kindness, with sympathy. In his water, he will administer the residual poison developed by the late Piter de Fries, and you will see that the antidote becomes a regular part of Howard's diet from this point on, unless I say otherwise. The antidote, yes, Nefud shook his head. But don't be dense, Nefud. 
The Duke almost killed me with that poison capsule tooth. The gas he exhaled into my presence deprived me of my most valuable mentat, Piter. I need a replacement. Howard? Howard. But you're, you're going, going to say Howard's completely loyal to the Atreides. True. But the Atreides are dead. We will woo him. He must be convinced he's not to blame for the Duke's demise. It was all the doing of that Bene Gesserit witch. He had an inferior master, one whose reason was clouded by emotion. Mentats admire the ability to calculate without emotion, Nefford. We will woo the formidable Thufer Howat. Woo him, yes, my lord. Howat, unfortunately, had a master whose resources were poor, one who could not elevate a Mentat to the sublime peaks of reasoning that are a Mentat's right. Howat will see a certain element of truth in this. The Duke couldn't afford the most efficient spies to provide his Mentat with the required information. The Baron stared at Nifford. Let us never deceive ourselves, Nifford. The truth is a powerful weapon. We know how we overwhelm the Atreides. Howat knows too. We did it with wealth. With wealth, yes, my lord. We will woo Howat, the Baron said. We will hide him from the Sardukar, and we will hold in reserve the withdrawal of the antidote for the poison. There's no way of removing the residual poison. And Nefud Hawat need never suspect. The antidote will not betray itself to a poison snooper. Hawat can scan his food as he pleases and detect no trace of poison. Nefud's eyes opened wide with understanding. The absence of a thing, the Baron said. This can be as deadly as the presence. The absence of air, eh? The absence of water. The absence of anything else we're addicted to. The Baron nodded. You understand me, Nefut? Nefut swallowed. Yes, my lord. Then get busy. Find the Sardukar commander and set things in motion. At once, my lord. Nefud bowed, turned, and hurried away. How art by my side? The Baron thought. The Sardukar will give him to me. If they suspect anything at all, it's that I wish to destroy the Mentat, and this suspicion I'll confirm. The fools! One of the most formidable Mentats in all history. A Mentat trained to kill and they'll toss him to me like some silly toy to be broken. I will show them what use can be made of such a toy. The Baron reached beneath a drapery beside his suspensor bed, pressed a button to summon his older nephew, Ravan. He sat back, smiling. And all the Atreides dead. 
The stupid guard captain had been right, of course. Certainly nothing survived in the path of the sandblast storm on Arrakis. Not an ornithopter or its occupants. The woman and the boy were dead. The bribes in the right places. The unthinkable expenditure to bring overwhelming military force down onto one planet. All the sly reports tailored for the Emperor's ears alone. All the careful scheming were here at last, coming to full fruition. Power and fear. Fear and power. The Baron could see the path ahead of him. One day, a Harkonnen would be Emperor. Not himself, and no spawn of his loins, but a Harkonnen. Not this Raban he'd summoned, of course, but Raban's younger brother, young Fade Rautha. There was a sharpness to the boy that the Baron enjoyed. A ferocity. A lovely boy, the Baron thought. A year or two more, say, by the time he's seventeen. I'll know for certain whether he's the tool that House Harkonnen requires to gain the throne. My Lord Baron, the man who stood outside the door field of the Baron's bedchamber was low-built, gross of face and body, with the Harkonnen paternal lines, narrow-set eyes, and bulge of shoulders. There was yet some rigidity in his fat, but it was obvious to the eye that he'd come one day to the portable suspensers for carrying his excess weight. A muscle-minded tank brain, the Baron thought. No mentat, my nephew. Not a piter de frise, but perhaps something more precisely devised for the task at hand. If I give him freedom to do it, he'll grind over everything in his path. How he'll be hated here on Arrakis. My dear Rabban, the Baron said. He released the door field, but pointedly kept his body shield at full strength, knowing that the shimmer of it would be visible above the bedside glow globe. You summoned me, Rabban said. He stepped into the room, flicked a glance past the air disturbance of the body shield, Searched for a suspensor chair, found none. Stand closer where I can see you easily, the Baron said. Urban advanced another step, thinking that the damnable old man had deliberately removed all chairs, forcing a visitor to stand. The Atreides are dead, the Baron said, the last of them. That's why I summoned you here to Arrakis. This planet is again yours. Raban blinked. But I thought you were going to advance Piter de Fries to the... Piter too is dead. Piter? Piter. The Baron reactivated the door field, blanked it against all energy penetration. You finally tired of him, eh? Raban asked. His voice fell flat and lifeless in the energy-blanketed room. I will say a thing to you just this once, the Baron rumbled. You insinuate that I obliterated Piter as one obliterates a trifle. He snapped fat fingers. Just like that, eh? I am not so stupid, nephew. I will take it unkindly if ever again you suggest by word or action that I am so stupid. <laughs> 
fear showed in the squinting of Raban's eyes. He knew within certain limits how far the old baron would go against family. Seldom to the point of death unless there were outrageous profit or provocation in it. But family punishments could be painful. Forgive me, my lord baron, Raban said. He lowered his eyes as much to hide his own anger as to show subservience. You do not fool me, Raban, the baron said. Raban kept his eyes lowered, swallowed. I make a point, the baron said. Never obliterate a man unthinkingly, the way an entire thief might do it through some due process of law. Always do it for an overriding purpose. And know your purpose. Anger spoke in Raban. But you obliterated the traitor, Yui. I saw his body being carried out as I arrived last night. Raban stared at his uncle, suddenly frightened by the sound of those words. But the Baron smiled. I'm very careful about dangerous weapons, he said. Dr. Yui was a traitor. He gave me the Duke. Strength poured into the Baron's voice. I suborned a doctor of the Sook school. The inner school. You hear, boy? But that's a wild sort of weapon to leave lying about. I didn't obliterate him casually. Does the Emperor know you suborned a Sook doctor? This was a penetrating question, the Baron thought. Have I misjudged this nephew? The Emperor doesn't know it yet, the Baron said. But his Saudukar are sure to report it to him. Before that happens, though, I'll have my own report in his hands through Chom Company channels. I will explain that I luckily discovered a doctor who pretended to the conditioning. A false doctor, you understand. Since everyone knows you cannot counter the conditioning of a Sukh school, this will be accepted. Ah, I see, Raban murmured. And the Baron thought, indeed, I hope you do see. I hope you do see how vital it is that this remains secret. The Baron suddenly wondered at himself, why did I do that? Why did I boast to this fool nephew of mine the nephew I must use and discard. The Baron felt anger at himself. He felt betrayed. It must be kept secret, Raban said. I understand. The Baron sighed. I give you different instructions about Arrakis this time, nephew. When last you ruled this place, I held you in strong reign. This time I have only one requirement. My lord, income. Income? Have you any idea, Raban, how much we spent to bring such military force to bear on their traders? Do you have even the first inkling of how much the guild charges for military transport? Expensive, eh? Expensive. The Baron shot a fat arm toward Raban. If you squeeze Arrakis for every cent it can give us for sixty years, you'll just barely repay us. 
Raban opened his mouth, closed it without speaking. Expensive, the Baron sneered. The damnable guild monopoly on space would have ruined us if I hadn't planned for this expense long ago. You should know, Raban, that we bore the entire brunt of it. We even paid for transport of the Sardukar. And not for the first time, the Baron wondered if there ever would come a day when the guild might be circumvented. They were insidious, bleeding off just enough to keep the host from objecting until they had you in their fist, where they could force you to pay and pay and pay. Always the exorbitant demands rode upon military ventures. Hazard rates, the oily guild agents explained. And for every agent you managed to insert as a watchdog in the guild bank structure, they put two agents into your system. Insufferable. Income then, Raban said. The Baron lowered his arm, made a fist. You must squeeze. And I may do anything I wish as long as I squeeze? Anything. The cannons you brought, Raban said. Could I? I'm removing them, the Baron said. But you, you won't need such toys. They were a special innovation and are now useless. We need the metal. They cannot go against a shield, Raban. They were merely the unexpected. It was predictable that the Duke's men would retreat into cliff caves on this abominable planet. Our cannon merely sealed them in. The Fremen don't use shields. You may keep some laser guns if you wish. Yes, my lord. And I have a free hand. As long as you squeeze. Raban's smile was gloating. I understand perfectly, my lord. You understand nothing perfectly, the Baron growled. Let us have that clear at the outset. What you do understand is how to carry out my orders. Has it occurred to you, nephew, that there are at least five million persons on this planet? Does my lord forget that I was his regent Siridar here before? And if my lord will forgive me, his estimate may be low. It's difficult to count a population scattered among sinks and pans the way they are here. And when you consider the Fremen of... The Fremen aren't worth considering. Forgive me, my lord. But the Sardaukar believe otherwise. The Baron hesitated, staring at his nephew. You know something? My lord had retired when I arrived last night. I uh, took the liberty of contacting some of my lieutenants from uh, before. They've been acting as guides to the Sardaukar. They report that a Fremen band ambushed a Sardaukar force somewhere southeast of here and wiped it out. Wiped out a Sardaukar force? Yes, my lord. Impossible. Raban shrugged. Fremen defeating Sardaukar, the Baron sneered. I repeat only what was reported to me, Raban said. It is said this Fremen force already had captured the Duke's redoubtable Thufirhawat. Ah. The Baron nodded, smiling. I believe the report, Raban said. You've no idea what a problem the Fremen were. Perhaps. But these weren't Fremen your lieutenants, so... They must have been Atreides' men trained by Hawat and disguised as Fremen. It's the only possible answer. 
Again, Raban shrugged. Well, the Sardaukar think they were Fremen. The Sardaukar already have launched a program to wipe out all Fremen. Good. But it'll keep the Sardaukar occupied and we'll soon have Hawat. I know it. I can feel it. Ah, this has been a day. The Sardaukar off hunting a few useless desert bands while we get the real prize. My lord, Raban hesitated, frowning. I've always felt that we underestimated the Fremen, both in numbers and in... Ignore them, boy, they're rabble! It's the populous towns, cities, and villages that concern us. A great many people there, eh? A great many, my lord. They worry me, Raban. Worry you? Oh, 90% of them are of no concern, but there are always a few. Houses minor and so on. People of ambition who might try a dangerous thing. If one of them should get off Arrakis with an unpleasant story about what happened here, I'd be most displeased. Have you any idea how displeased I'd be? Raban swallowed. You must take immediate measures to hold a hostage from each house minor, the Baron said. As far as anyone off Arrakis must learn, this was straightforward house-to-house -house battle. The Sardaukar had no part in it, you understand. The Duke was offered the usual quarter in exile, but he died in an unfortunate accident before he could accept. He was about to accept, though. That is the story. And any rumor that there was Sardaukar here, it must be laughed at. As the Emperor wishes it, Raban said. As the Emperor wishes it. What about the smugglers? No one believes smugglers, Raban. They are tolerated but not believed. At any rate, you'll be spreading some bribes in that quarter and taking other measures which I'm sure you can think of. Yes, my lord. Two things for Maracus, then, Raban. Income and a merciless fist. You must show no mercy here. Think of these clouds as what they are. Slaves, envious of their masters and waiting only the opportunity to rebel. Not the slightest vestige of pity or mercy must you show them. Can one exterminate an entire planet? Raban asked. Exterminate? Surprise showed in the swift turning of the Baron's head. Who said anything about exterminating? Well, I presumed you were going to bring in new stock, and I said squeeze, nephew, not exterminate. Don't waste the population. Merely drive them into utter submission. You must be the carnivore, my boy. He smiled. A baby's expression in the dimple fat face. A carnivore never stops. Show no mercy. Never stop. Mercy is a chimera. It can be defeated by the stomach rumbling its hunger, by the throat crying its thirst. You must be always hungry and thirsty. The Baron caressed his bulges beneath the suspensers. Like me. I see, my lord. 
Raban swung his gaze left and right. It's all clear then, nephew. Except for one thing, uncle. The planetologist Kynes. Ah, yes, Kynes. He's the emperor's man, my lord. He can come and go as he pleases, and he's very close to the Fremen. Married one. Kynes will be dead by tomorrow's nightfall. That's dangerous work, uncle, killing an imperial servant. How do you think I've come this far, this quickly? The baron demanded. His voice was low, charged with unspeakable adjectives. Besides, you need never have feared Kynes would leave Arrakis. You're forgetting that he's addicted to the spice. Of course, those who know will do nothing to endanger their supply, the Baron said. Kynes certainly must know. I forgot, Raban said. They stared at each other in silence. Presently, the Baron said, Incidentally, you will make my own supply one of your first concerns. I have quite a stockpile of private stuff, but that suicide raid by the Duke's men got most of what we'd stored for sale. Raban nodded. Yes, my lord. The Baron brightened. Now, tomorrow morning, you will assemble what remains of organization here, and you'll say to them, Our sublime Padisha Emperor has charged me to take possession of this planet and end all dispute. I understand, my lord. This time I'm sure you do. We will discuss it in more detail tomorrow. Now, leave me to finish my sleep. The Baron deactivated his door field, watched his nephew out of sight. A tanked brain, the Baron thought. Muscle-minded tank brain. They will be bloody pulp here when he's through with them. Then when I send in Fade Rautha to take the load off them, they'll cheer their rescuer. Beloved Fade Rautha. Benign Fade Rautha, the compassionate one who saves them from a beast. Fade Rautha, a man to follow and die for. The boy will know by that time how to oppress with impunity. I'm sure he's the one we need. He'll learn. And such a lovely body. Really, a lovely boy. At the age of 15, he had already learned silence. From A Child's History of Muad'Dib by the Princess Irulan. As Paul fought the Thopter's controls, he grew aware that he was sorting out the interwoven storm forces, his more than mentat awareness computing on the basis of fractional minutiae. He felt dust fronts, billowings, mixings of turbulence, and occasional vortex. The cabin interior was an angry box lighted by the green radiance of instrument dials. 
The tan flow of dust outside appeared featureless, but his inner sense began to see through the curtain. I must find the right vortex, he thought. For a long time now he had sensed the storm's power diminishing, but still it shook them. He waited out another turbulence. The vortex began as an abrupt billowing that rattled the entire ship. Paul defied all fear to bank the thopter left. Jessica saw the maneuver on the attitude globe. Paul, she screamed. The vortex turned them, twisting, tipping. It lifted the thopter like a chip on a geyser, spewed them up and out, a winged speck within a core of winding dust lighted by the second moon. Paul looked down, saw the dust-defined pillar of hot wind that had disgorged them, saw the dying storm trailing away like a dry river into the desert, moon-gray motion growing smaller and smaller below as they rode the updraft. We're out of it, Jessica whispered. Paul turned their craft away from the dust in swooping rhythm while he scanned the night sky. We've given them the slip, he said. Jessica felt her heart pounding. She forced herself to calmness, looked at the diminishing storm. Her time sense said they had ridden within that compounding of elemental forces almost four hours, but part of her mind computed the passage as a lifetime. She felt reborn. It was like the litany, she thought. We faced it and did not resist. The storm passed through us and around us. It's gone, but we remain. I don't like the sound of our wing motion, Paul said. We suffered some damage in there. He felt the grating, injured flight through his hands on the controls. They were out of the storm, but still not out into the full view of his prescient vision. Yet they had escaped, and Paul sensed himself trembling on the verge of a revelation. He shivered. The sensation was magnetic and terrifying, and he found himself caught on the question of what caused this trembling awareness. Part of it, he felt, was the spice-saturated diet of Arrakis. But he thought part of it could be the litany, as though the words had a power of their own. I shall not fear. Cause and effect. He was alive despite malignant forces, and he felt himself poised on a brink of self-awareness that could not have been without the litany's magic. Words from the Orange Catholic Bible rang through his memory. What senses do we lack that we cannot see or hear another world all around us. There's rock all around, Jessica said. Paul focused on the thopter's launching, shook his head to clear it. He looked where his mother pointed, saw uplifting rock shapes black on the sand ahead and to the right. He felt wind around his ankles, a stirring of dust in the cabin. There was a hole somewhere. More of the storm's doing. Better set us down on sand, Jessica said. The wings might not take full break. He nodded toward a place ahead where sand-blasted ridges lifted into moonlight above the dunes. I'll set us down near those rocks. Check your safety harness. She obeyed, thinking, We've water and still suits. If we can find food, we can survive a long time on this desert. Fremen live here. What they can do, we can do. Run for those rocks the instant we're stopped, Paul said. I'll take the pack. Run for... She fell silent, nodded. Worms. Our friends, the worms, he corrected her. They'll get this thopter. There'll be no evidence of where we landed. How direct his thinking, she thought. They glided lower, lower. 
there came a rushing sense of motion to their passage, blurred shadows of dunes, rocks lifting like islands. The thopter touched a dune top with a soft lurch, skipped a sand valley, touched another dune. He's killing our speed against the sand, Jessica thought, and permitted herself to admire his competence. Brace yourself, Paul warned. He pulled back on the wing brakes, gently at first, then harder and harder. He felt them cup the air, their aspect ratio dropping faster and faster. Wind screamed through the lapped coverts and primaries of the wing's leaves. Abruptly, with only the faintest lurch of warning, the left wing, weakened by the storm, twisted upward and in, slamming across the side of the thopter. The craft skidded across a dune top, twisting to the left. It tumbled down the opposite face to bury its nose in the next dune amid a cascade of sand. They lay stopped on the broken wing side, the right wing pointing toward the stars. Paul jerked off his safety harness, hurled himself upward across his mother, wrenching the door open. Sand poured around them into the cabin, bringing a dry smell of burned flint. He grabbed the pack from the rear, saw that his mother was free of her harness. She stepped up onto the side of the right-hand seat and out onto the thopter's metal skin. Paul followed, dragging the pack by its straps. Run, he ordered. He pointed up the dune face and beyond it where they could see a rock tower undercut by sandblast winds. Jessica leaped off the thopter and ran, scrambling and sliding up the dune. She heard Paul's panting progress behind. They came out onto a sand ridge that curved away toward the rocks. Follow the ridge, Paul ordered. It'll be faster. They slogged toward the rocks, sand gripping their feet. A new sound began to impress itself on them, a muted whisper, a hissing, an abrasive slithering. Worm, Paul said. It grew louder. Faster, Paul gasped. The first rock shingle, like a beach slanting from the sand, lay no more than ten meters ahead when they heard metal crunch and shatter behind them. Paul shifted his pack to his right arm, holding it by the straps. It slapped his side as he ran. He took his mother's arm with his other hand. They scrambled onto the lifting rock, up a pebble-littered surface through a twisted, wind-carved channel. Breath came dry and gasping in their throats. I can't run any farther, Jessica panted. Paul stopped, pressed her into a gut of rock, turned and looked down onto the desert. A mound in motion ran parallel to their rock island. Moonlit ripples, sand waves, a cresting burrow almost level with Paul's eyes at a distance of about a kilometer. The flattened dunes of its track curved once, a short loop crossing the patch of desert where they had abandoned their wrecked ornithopter. Where the worm had been, there was no sign of the aircraft. The burrow mound moved outward into the desert, coursed back across its own path, questing. It's bigger than a guild spaceship, Paul whispered. I was told worms grew large in the deep desert, but I didn't realize how big. Nor I, Jessica breathed. Again the thing turned out away from the rocks, sped now with a curbing track toward the horizon. They listened until the sound of its passage was lost in gentle sand stirrings around them. Paul took a deep breath looked up at the moon-frosted escarpment and quoted from the Kitab Ali Bar. Travel by night and rest in black shade through the day. He looked at his mother. We still have a few hours of night. Can you go on? In a moment. Paul stepped out onto the rock shingle, shouldered the pack and adjusted its straps. He stood a moment with a paracompass in his hands. Whenever you're ready, he said. 
She pushed herself away from the rock, feeling her strength return. Which direction? Where this ridge leads, he pointed. Deep into the desert, she said. The Fremen Desert, Paul whispered. And he paused, shaken by the remembered high-relief imagery of a prescient vision he had experienced on Caladan. He had seen this desert. But the set of the vision had been subtly different, like an optical image that had disappeared into his consciousness, been absorbed by memory, and now failed of perfect registry when projected onto the real scene. The vision appeared to have shifted and approached him from a different angle while he remained motionless. Idaho was with us in the vision, he remembered, but now Idaho is dead. Do you see a way to go? Jessica asked, mistaking his hesitation. No, he said, but we'll go anyway. He settled his shoulders more firmly in the pack, struck out up a sand-carved channel in the rock. The channel opened onto a moonlit floor of rock with benched ledges climbing away to the south. Paul headed for the first ledge, clambered onto it. Jessica followed. She noted presently how their passage became a matter of the immediate and particular, the sand pockets between rocks where their steps were slowed, the wind-carved ridge that cut their hands, the obstruction that forced a choice, go over or go around. The terrain enforced its own rhythms. They spoke only when necessary, and then with the hoarse voices of their exertion. Careful here, this ledge is slippery with sand. Watch you don't hit your head against this overhang. Stay below this ridge, the moon's at our backs, and it'd show our movement to anyone out there. Paul stopped in a bite of rock, leaned the pack against a narrow ledge. Jessica leaned beside him, thankful for the moment of rest. She heard Paul pulling at his stillsuit tube, sipped her own reclaimed water. It tasted brackish, and she remembered the waters of Caladan, a tall fountain enclosing a curve of sky, such a richness of moisture that it hadn't been noticed for itself. Only for its shape, or its reflection, or its sound as she stopped beside it. To stop, she thought. To rest. Truly rest. It occurred to her that mercy was the ability to stop, if only for a moment. There was no mercy where there could be no stopping. Paul pushed away from the rock ledge, turned, and climbed over a sloping surface. Jessica followed with a sigh. They slid down onto a wide shelf that led around a sheer rock face. Again they fell into the disjointed rhythm of movement across this broken land. Jessica felt that the night was dominated by degrees of smallness and substances beneath their feet and hands. Boulders or pea gravel or flaked rock or pea sand or sand itself or grit or dust or gossamer powder. The powder clogged nose filters and had to be blown out. Pea sand and pea gravel rolled on a hard surface and could spill the unwary. Rock flakes cut and the omnipresent sand patches dragged against their feet. Paul stopped abruptly on a rock shelf, steadied his mother as she stumbled into him. He was pointing left, and she looked along his arm to see that they stood atop a cliff with the desert stretched out like a static ocean some two hundred meters below. It lay there full of moon-silvered waves, shadows of angles that lapsed into curves and, in the distance, lifted to the misted gray blur of another escarpment. Open desert, she said. A wide place to cross. 
Paul said, and his voice was muffled by the filter trap across his face. Jessica glanced left and right, nothing but sand below. Paul stared straight ahead across the open dunes, watching the movement of shadows in the moon's passage. About three or four kilometers across, he said. Worms, she said. Sure to be. She focused on her weariness, the muscle ache that dulled her senses. Shall we rest and eat? Paul slipped out of the pack, sat down and leaned against it. Jessica supported herself by a hand on his shoulder as she sank to the rock beside him. She felt Paul turn as she settled herself, heard him scrabbling in the pack. Here, he said. His hand felt dry against hers as he pressed two energy capsules into her palm. She swallowed them with a grudging spit of water from her stillsuit tube. Drink all your water, Paul said. Axiom, the best place to conserve your water is in your body. It keeps your energy up. You're stronger. Trust your stillsuit. She obeyed, drained her catch pockets, feeling energy return. She thought then how peaceful it was here in this moment of their tiredness. And she recalled once hearing the minstrel warrior Gurney Halleck say, Better a dry morsel and quietness therewith than a house full of sacrifice and strife. Jessica repeated the words to Paul. That was Gurney, he said. She caught the tone of his voice, the way he spoke as of someone dead. Thought, and well poor Gurney might be dead. The Atreides' forces were either dead or captive or lost like themselves in this waterless void. Gurney always had the right quotation, Paul said. I can hear him now. And I will make the rivers dry and sell the land into the hand of the wicked. And I will make the land waste and all that is therein by the hand of strangers. Jessica closed her eyes, found herself moved close to tears by the pathos in her son's voice. Presently, Paul said, How do you feel? She recognized that his question was directed at her pregnancy. Said, Your sister won't be born for many months yet. I still feel physically adequate. And she thought, how stiffly formal I speak to my own son. And because it was the Bene Gesserit way to seek within for the answer to such an oddity, she searched and found the source of her formality. I'm afraid of my son. I fear his strangeness. I fear what he may see ahead of us, what he may tell me. Paul pulled his hood down over his eyes, listened to the bug-hustling sounds of the night. His lungs were charged with his own silence. His nose itched. He rubbed it, removed the filter, and grew conscious of the rich smell of cinnamon. There's melange spice nearby, he said. An eider wind feathered Paul's cheeks, ruffled the folds of his burnous. But this wind carried no threat of storm. Already he could sense the difference. Dawn soon, he said. Jessica nodded. There's a way to get safely across that open sand, Paul said. The Fremen do it. The worms? If we were to plant a thumper from our Frem kit back in the rocks here, Paul said, it'd keep a worm occupied for a time. She glanced at the stretch of moonlighted desert between them and the other escarpment. Four kilometers worth of time? 
perhaps. And if we crossed, they're making only natural sounds, the kind that don't attract the worms. Paul studied the open desert, questing in his prescient memory, probing the mysterious allusions to thumpers and maker hooks in the Fremkit manual that had come with their escape pack. He found it odd that all he sensed was pervasive terror at thought of the worms. He knew as though it lay just at the edge of his awareness that the worms were to be respected and not feared. If, if, he shook his head. It'd have to be sounds without rhythm, Jessica said. What? Oh. Yes, if we broke our steps, the sand itself must shift down at times. Worms can't investigate every little sound. We should be fully rested before we try it, though. He looked across at that other rock wall, seeing the passage of time in the vertical moon shadows there. It'll be dawn within the hour. Where'll we spend the day? She asked. Paul turned left, pointed. The cliff curves back north over there. You can see by the way it's wind cut. That's the windward face. There'll be crevices there, deep ones. Had we better get started? She asked. He stood, helped her to her feet. Are you rested enough for a climb down? I want to get as close as possible to the desert floor before we camp. Enough. She nodded for him to lead the way. He hesitated, then lifted the pack, settled it onto his shoulders, and turned along the cliff. If only we had suspensers, Jessica thought. It'd be such a simple matter to jump down there, but perhaps suspensers are another thing to avoid in the open desert. Maybe they attract the worms the way a shield does. They came to a series of shelves dropping down and beyond them saw a fissure with its ledge outlined by moon shadow leading along the vestibule. Paul led the way down, moving cautiously but hurrying because it was obvious the moonlight could not last much longer. They wound down into a world of deeper and deeper shadows. Hints of rock shape climbed to the stars around them. The fissure narrowed to some ten meters width at the brink of a dim gray sand slope that slanted downward into darkness. Can we go down? Jessica whispered. I think so. He tested the surface with one foot. We can slide down, he said. I'll go first. Wait until you hear me. Stop. Careful, she said. He stepped onto the slope and slid and slipped down its soft surface onto an almost level floor of packed sand. The place was deep within the rock walls. There came the sound of sand sliding behind him. He tried to see up the slope in the darkness, was almost knocked over by the cascade. It trailed away to silence. Mother, he said. There was no answer. Mother! He dropped the pack, hurled himself up the slope, scrambling, digging, throwing sand like a wild man. Mother! He gasped. Mother, where are you? Another cascade of sand swept down on him, burying him to the hips. He wrenched himself out of it. She'd been caught in the sand slide, he thought, buried in it. I must be calm and work this out carefully. She won't smother immediately. She'll compose herself in bindu suspension to reduce her oxygen needs. She knows I'll dig for her. In the Bene Gesserit way she had taught him, Paul stilled the savage beating of his heart, set his mind as a blank slate upon which the past few moments could write themselves. Every partial shift and twist of the slide replayed itself in his memory, moving with an interior stateliness that contrasted with the fractional second of real time required for the total recall. Presently, 
Paul moved slantwise up the slope, probing cautiously until he found the wall of the fissure, an outcurve of rock there. He began to dig, moving the sand with care not to dislodge another slide. A piece of fabric came under his hands. He followed it, found an arm. Gently, he traced the arm, exposed her face. Do you hear me? He whispered. No answer. He dug faster, freed her shoulders. She was limp beneath his hands, but he detected a slow heartbeat. Been to suspension, he told himself. He cleared the sand away to her waist, draped her arms over his shoulders and pulled down slope, slowly at first, then dragging her as fast as he could, feeling the sand give way above. Faster and faster he pulled her, gasping with the effort, fighting to keep his balance. He was out on the hard-packed floor of the fissure then, swinging her to his shoulder and breaking into a staggering run as the entire sand slope came down with a loud hiss that echoed and was magnified within the rock walls. He stopped at the end of the fissure where it looked out on the desert's marching dunes some thirty meters below. Gently he lowered her to the sand, uttered the word to bring her out of the catalepsis. She awakened slowly taking deeper and deeper breaths. I knew you'd find me, she whispered. He looked back up the fissure. It might have been kinder if I hadn't. Paul! I lost the pack, he said. It's buried under a hundred tons of sand, at least. Everything? The spare water, the still tent, everything that counts. He touched a pocket. I still have the paracompass. He fumbled at the waist sash. Knife! and binoculars. We can get a good look around the place where we'll die. In that instant, the sun lifted above the horizon somewhere to the left beyond the end of the fissure. Colors blinked in the sand out on the open desert. A chorus of birds held forth their songs from hidden places among the rocks. But Jessica had eyes only for the despair in Paul's face. She edged her voice with scorn, said, Is this the way you were taught? Don't you understand, he asked. Everything we need to survive in this place is under that sand. You found me, she said. And now her voice was soft, reasonable. Paul squatted back on his heels. Presently he looked up the fissure at the new slope, studying it, marking the looseness of the sand. If we could immobilize a small area of that slope and the upper face of a hole dug into the sand, we might be able to put down a shaft to the pack. Water might do it, but we don't have enough water for it. He broke off, then foam. Jessica held herself to stillness lest she disturb the hyper-functioning of his mind. Paul looked out at the open dunes searching with his nostrils as well as his eyes, finding the direction and then centering his attention on a darkened patch of sand below them. Spice, he said. Its essence, highly alkaline. And I have the paracompass. Its power pack is acid base. Jessica sat up straight against the rock. Paul ignored her, leaped to his feet, and was off down the wind-compacted surface that spilled from the end of the fissure to the desert's floor. He watched the way he walked, breaking his stride. Step, pause, step, step, slide, pause. There was no rhythm to it that might tell a marauding worm something not of the desert moved here. Paul reached the spice patch, shoveled a mound of it into a fold of his robe, returned to the fissure. 
He spilled the spice onto the sand in front of Jessica, squatted, and began dismantling the paracompass using the point of his knife. The compass face came off. He removed his sash, spread the compass parts on it, lifted out the power pack. The dial mechanism came out next, leaving an empty, dished compartment in the instrument. You'll need water, Jessica said. Paul took the catch tube from his neck, sucked up a mouthful, expelled it into the dished compartment. If this fails, that's water wasted, Jessica thought. But it won't matter then anyway. With his knife, Paul cut open the power pack, spilled its crystals into the water. They foamed slightly, subsided. Jessica's eyes caught motion above them. She looked up to see a line of hawks along the rim of the fissure. They perched there, staring down at the open water. Great mother, she thought, they can sense water even at that distance. Paul had the cover back on the paracompass, leaving off the reset button which gave a small hole into the liquid. Taking the reworked instrument in one hand, a handful of spice in the other, Paul went back up the fissure, studying the lay of the slope. His robe billowed gently without the sash to hold it. He waded partway up the slope, kicking off the sand rivulets, spurts of dust. Presently he stopped, pressed a pinch of the spice into the paracompass, shook the instrument case. Green foam boiled out of the hole where the reset button had been. Paul aimed it at the slope, spread a low dike there, began kicking away the sand beneath it, immobilizing the opened face with more foam. Jessica moved to a position below him, called out, May I help? Come up and dig, he said. We've about three meters to go. It's going to be a near thing. As he spoke, the foam stopped billowing from the instrument. Quickly, Paul said, no telling how long this foam will hold the sand. Jessica scrambled up beside Paul as he sifted another pinch of spice into the hole, shook the paracompass case. Again, foam boiled from it. As Paul directed the foam barrier, Jessica dug with her hands, hurling the sand down the slope. How deep, she panted. About three meters, he said. And I can only approximate the position. We may have to widen this hole. He moved a step aside, slipping in loose sand. Slant your digging backward. Don't go straight down. Jessica obeyed. Slowly the hole went down, reaching a level even with the floor of the basin and still no sign of the pack. Could I have miscalculated? Paul asked himself. I'm the one that panicked originally and caused this mistake. Has that warped my ability? He looked at the paracompass. Less than two ounces of the acid infusion remained. Jessica straightened in the hole, rubbed a foam-stained hand across her cheek. Her eyes met Paul's. The upper face, Paul said. Gently now. He added another pinch of spice to the container, sent the foam boiling around Jessica's hands as she began cutting a vertical face in the upper slant of the hole. On the second pass, her hands encountered something hard. Slowly, she worked out a length of strap with a plastic buckle. Don't move any more of it. Paul said, and his voice was almost a whisper. We're out of foam. Jessica held the strap in one hand, looked up at him. Paul threw the empty paracompass down onto the floor of the basin, said, Give me your other hand. Now listen carefully. I'm going to pull you to the side and downhill. Don't let go of that strap. We won't get much more spill from the top. This slope has stabilized itself. All I'm going to aim for is to keep your head free of the sand. Once that hole's filled, we can dig you out and pull up the pack. I understand, she said. Ready? Ready? She tensed her fingers on the strap. With one surge, Paul had her half out of the hole, holding her head up as the foam barrier gave way and sand spilled down. When it had subsided, 
Jessica remained buried to the waist, her left arm and shoulder still under the sand, her chin protected on a fold of Paul's robe. Her shoulder ached from the strain put on it. I still have the strap, she said. Slowly, Paul worked his hand into the sand beside her, found the strap. Together, he said, steady pressure, we mustn't break it. More sand spilled down as they worked the pack up. When the strap cleared the surface, Paul stopped, freed his mother from the sand. Together, then they pulled the pack down slope and out of its trap. In a few minutes, they stood on the floor of the fissure, holding the pack between them. Paul looked at his mother. Foam strained her face, her robe. Sand was caked to her where the foam had dried. She looked as though she had been a target for balls of wet green sand. You look a mess, he said. You are not so pretty yourself, she said. They started to laugh, then sobered. That shouldn't have happened, Paul said. I was careless. She shrugged, feeling caked sand fall away from her robe. I'll put up the tent, he said. Better slip off that robe and shake it out. He turned away, taking the pack. Jessica nodded, suddenly too tired to answer. There's anchor holes in the rock, Paul said. Someone's tented here before. Why not, she thought as she brushed at her robe. This was a likely place, deep in rock walls and facing another cliff some four kilometers away. Far enough above the desert to avoid worms, but close enough for easy access before a crossing. She turned, seeing that Paul had the tent up, its rib-domed hemisphere blending with the rock walls of the fissure. Paul stepped past her, lifting his binoculars. He adjusted their internal pressure with a quick twist, focused the oil lenses on the other cliff, lifting golden tan in morning light across open sand. Jessica watched as he studied that apocalyptic landscape, his eyes probing into sand rivers and canyons. There are growing things over there, he said. Jessica found the spare binoculars in the pack beside the tent, moved up beside Paul. There, he said, holding the binoculars with one hand and pointing with the other. She looked where he pointed. Saguaro, she said, scrawny stuff. There may be people nearby, Paul said. That could be the remains of a botanical testing station, she warned. This is pretty far south into the desert, he said. He lowered his binoculars, rubbed beneath his filter baffle, feeling how dry and chapped his lips were, sensing the dusty taste of thirst in his mouth. This has the feeling of a Fremen place, he said. Are we certain the Fremen will be friendly? she asked. Kinds promised their help. But there's desperation in the people of this desert, she thought. I felt some of it myself today. Desperate people might kill us for our water. She closed her eyes and, against this wasteland, conjured in her mind a scene from Caladan. There had been a vacation trip once on Caladan, she and the Duke Leto, before Paul's birth. They'd flown over the southern jungles, above the weed-wild, shouting leaves and rice paddies of the deltas. And they had seen the ant lines in the greenery. Man-gangs carrying their loads on suspenser boyd shoulder poles. And in the sea reaches, there'd been the white petals of trimaran dows. All of it gone. 
Jessica opened her eyes to the desert stillness, to the mounting warmth of the day. Restless heat devils were beginning to set the air a quiver out on the open sand. The other rock face across from them was like a thing seen through cheap glass. A spill of sand spread its brief curtain across the open end of the fissure. The sand hissed down, loosed by puffs of morning breeze, by the hawks that were beginning to lift away from the clifftop. When the sandfall was gone, she still heard it hissing. It grew louder. A sound that once heard was never forgotten. Worm, Paul whispered. It came from their right with an uncaring majesty that could not be ignored, a twisting burrow mound of sand cut through the dunes within their field of vision. The mound lifted in front, dusting away like a bow wave in water. Then it was gone, coursing off to the left. The sound diminished, died. I've seen space frigates that were smaller, Paul whispered. She nodded, continuing to stare across the desert. Where the worm had passed, there remained that tantalizing gap. It flowed bitterly endless before them, beckoning beneath its horizontal collapse of skyline. When we've rested, Jessica said, we should continue with your lessons. He suppressed a sudden anger, said, Mother, don't you think we could do without... Today you panicked, she said. You know your mind and bindu nervature perhaps better than I do, but you've much yet to learn about your body's prana musculature. The body does things of itself sometimes, Paul, and I can teach you about this. You must learn to control every muscle, every fiber of your body. You need review of the hands. We'll start with finger muscles, palm tendons, and tip sensitivity. She turned away. Come into the tent. Now. He flexed the fingers of his left hand, watching her crawl through the sphincter valve, knowing that he could not deflect her from this determination, that he must agree. Whatever has been done to me, I've been a party to it, he thought. Review of the hand. He looked at his hand. How inadequate it appeared when measured against such creatures as that worm.
another thrilling episode. How you feeling, baby? How was that for you? That was intense and beautiful. Intense and beautiful. In the MAZ. Shouts out to everybody locked in. Hi. Cindy Burley says amazing. Robert Easley says another great book club. Red Dracon says nice episode. D-Man says soothing like nothing else. Dan Davis posts that, um, what is that, that emoji? What is that fruit? Is that a fruit, a vegetable, the big purple guy? The one people use instead of a wang. I don't even know what that thing is. I've never seen one in real life. I don't know what that is. Yeah. Mini Wave Autonomous Zone makes some noise. It's that Dune Mini Wave Live Book Club. Dune Wave Audio Book Club. I never did quite settle on what the right name for it was. And, you know, one day I will. One day, one day I'll be like, oh, that's the name, the really sunk name for what this is. Because it's not an audio book club, because it's combined with music. Audio, oh, I don't know, I'll work it out. One day. Uh, Cindy Bailey says, so far we've read 254 pages. Nice, what are we about halfway through? Is it something like that? I don't even know. I don't know, baby. That was such a, such a well-paced... Uh, and symmetrical uh, section, chapter, however you want to put it. Because it's not chapters, you know, but obviously it has to be split into sections uh, for, for the audiobook because that was originally on CDs, you know, CDs can fit a certain amount of data. But that was like, you know, that was half, uh, half dastardly fat bastard, half uh, world's greatest mother and son duo getting after it. Uh, oh, I love that fat bastard. I love uh, the the voice our beautiful narrator gives him, you know. Red Dracon says it's a new genre, bookwave. Bookwave, maybe it is bookwave. Storywave. I don't know, bookwave, storywave, something like that. Litwave. Lit, I mean, lit is, um, there was already, now lit sounds a bit pretentious. I don't know why. <laughs> Literature. I don't know. I mean, literally, it's a beautiful thing. I know what it is, because there was such a thing as lit hop. And uh, people sort of rapping bits of Shakespeare. You know. It's not a book way, story way, something. Anyway, it's good. Whatever it is, it's dope, right? Whatever it is, it's a dope thing. <laughs> like, you know, part of me is like, oh, imagine not being me. I'd be able to experience this from the outside. It might be pretty cool. Zach Sounds says, you're the new Lever Burton. Who's that? Is he cool? <laughs> anyway. Nice. Uh, Red Dracon says, yeah, this is the cutting edge. 
I mean, it feels beautiful, right? It feels nice. It feels nice out here on the edge. Uh, wherever this is, you know. I, I like it. This place is a good place. Feels uh, righteous. Whoa! All right, baby. Well, thank you for being here. Uh, thank you to everyone who supports it. Uh, that would be Luke. Thank you, Luke. Uh, thank you, West Intro, uh, who uh, is also a new member. Shouts out to you, baby. There's your new member noise. Yeah. Desk is so wobbly. Look at this thing. Ah, ah, ah. It's a spaceship. We are in a spaceship. And uh, we'll be back tomorrow. And tomorrow is Thanksgiving here in America. And we'll be giving thanks, you know. People say, Kira the Don, are you, are you taking uh, Thanksgiving off? I say, what? And, uh, and abandon my people? I couldn't abandon my people? No. I'm so thankful for my people. The, the last thing I would do on Thanksgiving is abandon my people, my joke. No, 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 we will be here. 7 a.m. CT on TWITCH. And I will be here tomorrow night at 7 CT on YouTube. As 3086 says, my life is different after last night's stream. Yo, nice, that's beautiful. Yeah, I'm excited about, I'm excited about last night's stream. Uh, it's weird, it's kind of like last night, what we did last night was my initial vision. For what I wanted to do with this channel like three years ago. Weirdly. I kind of sort of took that long to get to the point, which was basically mainly technology. Like I tried, I'd attempted it a couple of times and like there would always be some kind of technological fuck up. Uh, this touch, there's no wood here for me to touch, but uh, you know, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy everything. Uh, you know, splash your light on your boy. The technology is working pretty good right now. The internet has been stable. Uh, the, the multiple, what is it, three, four computers are working harmoniously with each other uh, so that we can do full-blown audio-visual audio. I know I make it look easy. You know, I know I make it look easy, but it ain't. <laughs> uh, it's very complicated, and there's a, minute, there's a thousand and one things that can go wrong at any given time. And just getting, like, visual and audio and everything to all sync up and work and play nicely together and... Uh, you know, it took a while to get to this point where it's now playing nicely together. And that's very exciting to me because it means that I can start to do some of the bigger ideas that I've had. Some of the grander concepts and, and uh, cooler shit, you know. So that's very exciting. The Defy says, awesome. It was my favorite yesterday. So happy it worked. Uh, D-Man says, yesterday was so refreshing. Well, that's epic. We'll do another one next week. We'll do another one of those, and uh, you know, there's a lot more in that realm, in that area, a lot of stuff I want to do. Uh, so there. Hurrah! All right, boom. Are we going to get out of here? Uh, I've got to go finish that Christmas album uh, vocal mix thing. I don't know what it's called. I really need better names for all this stuff. Uh, but you know, thank you all for being here, of course. Uh, it's always an honor to be in your presence, you know? And uh, yeah, like I said, we'll be back tomorrow morning, 7CT, for the Ultra Party. Who was here this morning? It was Ultra again. 
It was Ultra again. Uh, I don't know how we keep doing it, but we're like, we've been on a streak of Ultra. Feels good, man. Feels good. Uh, as always, if you want to support the wave, my advice to you is support the wave. Go to meaningwave.com. Support the wave at meaningwave.com. Um, enjoy. Enjoy the epic Christmas collection. We've got one. It's epic and Christmas. Epic and also very, very Christmas. Um, you know, I, I would like to be able to navigate to it speedily. I don't know I can. There you go. Yeah, epic Christmas collection. Uh, hiding behind some dunes. Uh, Begone dunes. There you go. Epic Christmas collection. Check it out. We've got the lo-fi uh, Christmas miracle design on, uh, on hoodies and velvet pants and all sorts. We've got this wonderful, beautiful Meaning Wave Christmas design and another beautiful Christmas Meaning Wave design. We've got lots of Meaning Wave Christmas stuff. Go to MeaningWave.com. Check that out. We've also got a donate page. For those of you who want to donate, people hit me up literally every day and say, hey, Kira the Don, how can we support you? Uh, you can go to PayPal. There's a PayPal link. There's a Patreon link. There's a Bitcoin link. There's a Venmo link. There's a Cash App link. And uh, yeah, shout out to all the Bitcoin billionaires who've been uh, uh, hitting us up lately. That's very sweet of you. And uh, people keep telling me to get Litecoins and Ethereums and all sorts of shit. And uh, I, I guess I will. I guess I'll work out all that stuff, you know. We are in the future after all. We should act accordingly. We should take advantage of these beautiful futuristic things, you know. And uh, of course, you know, you can do that. You can go to uh, Twitch, follow us there. You become a member of this channel. You can go to Bandcamp, download the music. Uh, but if all of those things are outside of your means, one thing that I think is probably within your means is that you could let somebody know today, tomorrow, Meaning Wave exists. You can do that. You have the power. We don't have press. We don't have, uh, you know, journalists writing about us. Uh, we don't have agents, management, any of that. People keep saying to me, oh, Kira the Don, who does your da-da-da? I do it. I do the da-da-da. That's who does the da-da-da. And uh, yeah, so, you know, you guys doing the da-da-da, Meaning Wave exists. Incredibly, incredibly helpful. That's how we managed to keep growing. Uh, that's how we've uh, grown another 11% in the past month on Spotify alone. And that's wonderful. And that's down to you, I'm pretty sure. LZ says, when are you joining Locals? We're on Locals. We're already on Locals. Locals is there. We're, we try and be everywhere we can. You know. Uh, we try and be everywhere we can. And uh, of course, if you spot anything that's something we should be involved in, please do let us know. Oh, oh, oh. Yeah. All right, baby, thank you so much for being here. Uh, we're going to get out of here. Bye, five is all that remains to be done. And uh, you guys go forth and be mighty. How about that? Three, two, one. Bye. Perfect, baby, perfect. Ooh, yeah. Nice.